Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Kellen, it's been a couple weeks now since we first introduced ads on the podcast. Can we finally quit our day jobs and just go full time with this? Well, yeah, with just one ad, we are raking it in. <laughs> We're there. We've made it. Um, no, I, I did want to bring it up and just say thanks to our listeners. It sounds like so far we've we've gotten a lot of positive feedback just about the style of the ads and the simplicity of it. We're not trying to overcomplicate things. We're not trying to crowd the podcast too much with them. At least the way that we're doing things now at the time of recording this, it's all pretty low-key. And we're grateful for the feedback that we've received because there's been some requests or ideas or pointers around ads, people telling us the things that they like and the things they don't like, uh, you know, from listening to podcasts and the ads that are involved there. So feel free to keep that feedback coming. You can reach out to me on Reddit, user Corey John, email us at breakingdowncollapse at gmail.com. You can even reach out via Twitter at CollapsePod, you know, if you've got some sort of feedback you'd like to give. Yeah, it's definitely not. It's something pretty minimal. And we'll see where it goes. Hopefully, the advertiser will see value coming from it. But if nothing else, I think, Corey, as you and I have talked about it, it just gives us hope, right? That, that maybe there is a path here that we can keep providing really meaningful content. We can dig deeper on a lot of these topics, read all the books that we want to, have the right conversations with the experts, at some point generate that sister podcast that we talked about that helps all of us become more resilient in the way that's best for us. So I think there's a lot of exciting things down the road, but we'll keep with our goal of minimizing any disruption to the listener experience from those ads and also trying to make them actually valuable, something that adds value and is relevant. 
Yeah, and one thing that we didn't mention in that extra episode talking about why we were doing this was that well before we get to the point where we can quit our day jobs and dedicate ourselves completely to everything that you just mentioned, it's also going to allow us to hopefully hire somebody to edit the podcast. You know, right now I do all the editing myself. It takes me several hours per week, which is time that I could be spending doing more research, digging in deeper just to, you know, increase the quality of the content that we're already doing. So I'm confident that as we continue down this path we started on, it's going to open up a lot of opportunities for us, both now and in the future. Well, now that we've spent like five times as much time even just talking about the fact that we have an advertisement than the advertisement itself, maybe we should actually dive into the content. Valid. Let's do it. So, Kellen, we have talked a lot on the podcast about climate change. Obviously, it's a huge part of Collapse. And one of the people that we've talked about when it comes to climate change, someone who tries to describe the future to us, is David Wallace Wells. And so to start this one, I wanted to go back and revisit a little bit of some of the things that David Wallace Wells has talked about, just in regards to how immediate this problem is and what's at stake for us to work to solve it now. So he says that he believes our best case scenario is two degrees. And quite frankly, he's more optimistic than I am. I don't think that two degrees is even in the best case scenarios anymore. Though he does note that that would only happen if we completely stopped using all dirty forms of energy like coal and oil and transitioned completely to renewables. So again, that's why I am not as optimistic as he is. You know, we've, we've talked about in the podcast why renewables are not going to save us and why it's not even likely that we'll hit 100% renewables. He also talks about how two degrees is known as catastrophic warming. So when you hear people talk about catastrophic warming, they're talking about the point after two degrees Celsius. At catastrophic warming, David Wallace Wells talks about the future. He says two degrees would be terrible. It's better than three, at which point Southern Europe would be in permanent drought. African droughts would last five years on average, and the areas burned annually by wildfires in the United States could quadruple or worse from our record-breaking years to this point. He talks about how three degrees is much better than four, at which point six natural disasters could strike a single community simultaneously. The number of climate refugees already in the millions could grow 10 or 20-fold or more, and globally damages from warming could reach $600 trillion, about double all the wealth that exists in the world today. He says we're on track for more warming still, just above 4 degrees by 2100. So he says, if optimism is always a matter of perspective, the possibility of 4 degrees shapes mine. And we've talked much more extensively about the consequences of hitting 2, 3, 4, 5 degrees, um, specifically in episodes 8 and 17 of this podcast. So if you want a refresher on what the future looks like, go back and listen to those episodes. So while he says he feels like it's unlikely that we'll hit four degrees Celsius, um, I can't personally say that I find it unlikely. He said in order to stay below two degrees, we would have to have a comprehensively decarbonized economy, a perfectly renewable energy system, a reimagined system of agriculture, perhaps even a planet without meat eaters. We also need overhauls of the world's transportation systems and infrastructure. He makes the point that according to the IPCC, we now have less than nine years to have our emissions in order to prevent reaching two degrees. And to achieve that, just in the U.S. would require a mobilization as large as or larger than that of World War II, which was a massive mobilization effort in which there was a draft, food was rationed, you know, there was nationalization of industry, just this huge concerted effort. But right now it seems like we're kind of just standing around twiddling our thumbs and kind of looking at each other to see who's going to take action first. Politically, it seems like it's never going to happen. 
you know, the Green New Deal, as good of a start that it may have been had it passed, it still wouldn't have been near enough. And all of that just in the U.S., where 15% of emissions come from, when you have countries like China that account for a quarter of all emissions alone. We saw at COP26 just recently in Glasgow, nations are not willing to work together to really make any sort of actual effort. Emissions are continuing to rise. So all of that is to say it's drastic. Not only do we understand that and know that in the collapse community, but climate change is a much more mainstream, sort of wider known issue. And so it's something that's being worked on more actively. The issue is that it seems like instead of working to decarbonize, we're putting all our hopes and dreams in technology. Right now, there are two options that seem to be the ones that everybody clamors about, the ones that people say, this is what's going to save us when it comes to climate change. One is geoengineering, which we talked about in a previous episode. That was episode 37. And the other is carbon capture, which is the focus of today's episode. You know, it's so interesting as I hear you describe all of that, because I'm somebody who has become a, a firm believer in collapse. And we have a podcast about it. We talk about it every single week. And yet, even still, there are lots of times where I will think to myself, like, oh, it's probably going to turn out better than what I am anticipating. It's probably not really that bad. You know, maybe I think some of the news that we hear and the facts and figures are only painting one side of the story. And maybe I should be more optimistic than I am. And then I hear you paint that picture and describe what things will be like just at our current pace. And it reminds me of all the things that we're seeing already, all the droughts and all the extreme weather events and all the disruptions to life as we know it. And it kind of feels a little bit like a slap in the face again. It kind of wakes me up and I'm like, oh yeah, we are in a serious predicament. And unless there are some really significant changes and Perhaps even if there are some really significant changes, we're in a whole world of trouble. So I think this conversation today is especially important because when we talk about technology and what the options are and what the possibilities are, we sometimes talk about technologies that prevent or minimize further impact on climate change. Uh, other times we talk about technologies that just help us adapt to the effects of climate change. But this one is really interesting because at first glance, it's like, whoa, carbon capture, that is something that could even reverse our contribution to climate change. And, and there's really not much else out there like that. Almost everything else has to do with ways to reduce our emissions, but to actually kind of reverse it. When you first hear about it, you're like, wow, we should put all of our hope in that. And there's definitely a lot of good here. And we're going to talk about that. We, we want to discuss what this is and why carbon capture technology is important and the ways it can help us. But also, I'm sure we'll be discussing the ways that it is not going to save us. Yeah, just like most technologies that we talk about on this podcast, like there are good things about them. We don't do these episodes to just try and crap on a bunch of the technologies and make it seem like they're absolutely worthless. Like we'll point out the cool things about carbon capture. But like Kellen said, it'll be pretty easy to understand throughout this conversation why we can't put all our hope in this and why it's so frustrating that we see other people do, especially because it might make them feel like everything can continue on as normal. We can continue to do everything we're doing the same because we have this amazing technology that's going to come and just reverse everything magically for us. Yeah. And as I've done research on this, even listening to interviews from people who are in the carbon capture industry, who are leaders in the industry and have dedicated 
their lives to this work, even they say like, this is one important ingredient. It's one factor or one approach that we need to take, but it's not the answer. And, and I hear them kind of pleading for us to implement every sort of approach in every technology. But like I said, it's something that can actually help reverse some of our contribution to climate change. That's a big reason to pay attention to it. it it's a functioning technology. Like it's not just theoretical. We, we actually have some carbon capture plants out there and they do pull carbon out of the air. Researchers, you know, as they talk about what we need to do to keep the planet from arriving at catastrophic levels, they talk about how even if we stop right away doing all the destructive things we're doing, we still need to remove a lot of the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere. So it, it's an important part of it. And then beyond that, I think it's getting a lot of attention from the public right now because they're seeing that it's getting a lot of attention from major players in the oil industry like ExxonMobil. You know, Elon Musk at one point offered a hundred million dollar prize to whoever can present the best carbon capture technology. You've got United Airlines and Microsoft. So many big wealthy individuals and corporations are claiming that they're prioritizing this and they're throwing money into it. We also see that Congress is getting on board with this. They're dedicating budget towards it. So, I mean, the, the best thing we could do is to stop emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere. There's that whole idea of like better prepare and prevent than repair and repent. It's much easier to stop doing the damage than to try and do all these costly things to repair the damage that we're doing. But anyways, when it comes to carbon removal strategies, there's basically two categories. There's the biological side and the technology side. So you think about trying to reduce the carbon that's in the atmosphere. Well, trees inhale carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen. So yeah, we, we need to plant more trees and change some of our agricultural processes. You know, there's, there's talk about restoring blue carbon marine ecosystems or deploying more kelp into the oceans. And those are all ways that we can help nature to heal the damage that we have done to nature. But on the other end, you've got technology. And oftentimes when we say carbon capture, we're referring to all sorts of different things. Technically, carbon capture and storage or CCS is about preventing carbon emissions from the source. So for example, at natural gas plants, or power plants or places where they produce fertilizer, they can implement a few of these different technologies to try to make it so those processes don't emit so much carbon. There's something called amine scrubbing, where you basically run exhaust through a column that's filled with a solution. It's an, an alkaline amine solution. And the compounds in that solution, they bind with the CO2 in the exhaust. So that the exhaust can exit from the column without any of that CO2. And when I say without any, I mean, these can be pretty effective. They can prevent 90% of the carbon from going out in that exhaust. But anyways, then you heat the solution, you compress those bonds, and that releases the CO2. That's an example of, of what we call post-combustion carbon capture. There's also something called pre-combustion, which is still in early stages of development, but it involves gasifying fuel and separating out the CO2. You know, that's one that's not really economically feasible at any existing facilities, but there's ways that they can build that technology into new facilities. 
But often when we talk about carbon capture, we're kind of using the wrong term. Usually we're referring to something called CDR, which is carbon dioxide removal. And that's where we're pulling out CO2 from the atmosphere that's already there. So more specifically, when we talk about CDR, we're typically thinking of direct air capture. And they've developed a couple of different methods for this. Typically, they're pulling in air through these giant fans, and then it goes through a process. So sometimes it looks a little bit different. In one case, they pull in the air with these big fans. It goes into something called an air contractor, and then the air gets pulled through these sheets of plastic that are kind of honeycomb patterned, and they're covered in a solution that absorbs the carbon dioxide. And then that solution that is now carbon rich goes through a couple of chemical steps in something called a pellet reactor, and it creates these calcium carbonate pellets. Those pellets then go into something called a calciner, which heats them up at really high temperatures and the carbon is released. And then that can be captured in like a pure gas form of CO2. So the the solution then at that point can be recycled back through and they can again capture the carbon before turning it into pellets and then heating up those pellets to release the carbon and capture that carbon dioxide. Another method, which is similar in is one in which they pull the air in using these big fans, but instead of having like a liquid solution, they have a solid filter inside the collector. And then once that filter gets filled up with as much carbon as it can hold, they close the collector and they heat it up a bunch, which then releases the CO2. And, you know, one company that's doing this, they try to use renewable energy for that whole process. It it is very energy intensive. So if I remember right, there's like a plant in Iceland where they're able to use geothermal energy to create all that heat that then releases the CO2 from those solid filters and they can collect it as a, a pure carbon dioxide gas. But whether it's either of these processes that I've described, you gotta ask yourself, what do they do with it once they've got it? What do they do with the carbon dioxide? And in some cases, they can mix it with H2O and essentially make like a hot seltzer, which they inject really deep into the ground. They pump it down in the ground into like a basalt rock formation, and it eventually mineralizes and it's locked up underground. Um, In some places, they combine it with hydrogen and they make fuel. And if you put that fuel in your car and you burn it, well, then the carbon goes back up in the atmosphere, but they still consider it carbon neutral because you're not putting any new carbon into the atmosphere. You're just pulling existing carbon out of the atmosphere and then burning it and putting it back up there. Yeah, so everything that you're describing just sounds like a really helpful technological advancement that we've made that has the capability to, like you said, remove carbon from the atmosphere that we've already emitted or stop it from going into the atmosphere at the source, which for most people you would think like, well, whether this is going to work or not, or whether we can do it at the scale that we need or not, like it's better to try. It's better to start somewhere and every little bit counts. Like it can't hurt, right? But what I think that a lot of people don't understand is that at least in some ways, carbon capture actually hurts more than it helps, right? 
yeah, you're, you're right. It sounds like it's all this beautiful, magical solution that's going to at least help solve the problem to some degree. But it's funny you bring up that other side of it, because I was just about to mention something else that they do with the carbon dioxide. You know, some of these other things I've talked about, like pulling it out of the air and going through the whole process and then just storing it underground. Well, somebody has to foot the bill for that. It's a, it's a very costly thing. And even when it comes to making it into a fuel, they struggle to get that fuel to a price that is competitive, that they can sell it at, because it's not something that's subsidized, at least in the US, like fuel made from corn or palm oil or fuel made from city waste. So a lot of times what they do instead is they turn to the oil companies and it turns out that you can pump the CO2 down into an oil well. And when they do this, it makes the oil less dense, causes it to float to the top, and that makes it easier for them to extract it. So this is particularly helpful in oil wells that, you know, they're kind of getting to the bottom of the well. They call this enhanced oil recovery. And this seems to be the way that some of these carbon capture companies feel like they have to do things in order to make it economical. But when they give it to the oil companies who then use it to be able to pump out more oil, well, at that point, we're pumping more oil, burning even more oil. So we're just throwing more carbon up into the air. And, and I guess the other issue is that if we paint this picture that we can just remove all carbon from the air, it makes people just kind of think we've got this get out of jail free card. We can continue to burn fossil fuels like crazy because, hey, here's this technology that's going to pull it right back out. So in short, yeah, it's it's problematic. And being able to effectively scale this in a way that actually helps the environment and doesn't hurt it is something we have not found a way to do. And by the way, if I can backtrack just a little bit, I know I had mentioned like if you want to remove carbon from the air, you can do the biological thing with planting more trees and stuff like that, or you can turn to technology and you might think, well, great, then why don't we just plant more trees? And I saw something where they went into all the details and they did their calculations. They kind of showed the math on this. And the claim was that if we want to get back to the pre-industrial revolution, carbon dioxide levels, we would need 60 trillion trees. So as great as these biological, more natural solutions to pulling carbon out of the air are, there's this sentiment that like we have to implement technology. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that they were talking about the, the nature side saying in order to make that happen, we would have to occupy a significant portion of existing farmland to plant trees. So while planting trees is cheaper than the technological side of carbon capture, it's simply not feasible as it would wreak havoc on our current way of life as far as just being able to feed people. And I think we'll do an episode on that later on um, around the natural side because, you know, there are things like algae, there are things like phytoplankton that they're working with, kelp forests, you know, using these ocean plants, basically this ocean life to be able to help absorb more carbon dioxide. And that's just going to be research on a completely separate topic. This one's more about the technological side of carbon capture. But it is interesting to, to hear that because you hear people talk all the time about planting trees. And while, of course, we should be planting trees as many as we can, as much as we can, you know, they require a lot of water. They require a lot of space, which are things that we are either running out of or are out of. So I want to go back in, in a minute and touch on what you were just talking about with carbon capture use and storage, which was that ability to take the carbon out of the air and then actually reuse it for something else, like extracting more oil, which is just beyond ridiculous to me. But I don't want to get too passionate and upset about that yet. So first, 
let's take a look at where we actually stand right now as far as what carbon capture facilities are out there and sort of how are they performing. So it used to be that carbon capture was considered sort of this last ditch effort, right? It's sort of the way that we currently look at geoengineering. Like we're going to be in a bad place and we have to start doing that because it's just our absolute last effort to try and stop this. We used to think of carbon capture that way, but now it's actually a crutch of pretty much any climate model that keeps us below two degrees Celsius. Going back to, to David Wallace Wells, he says that of 400 IPCC emissions models that land us below two degrees Celsius, 344 of them feature negative emissions, most of them significantly. And negative emissions are what we're talking about here of actually extracting carbon from the air. The ones that don't rely on negative emissions all require such sharp and immediate emission drops, it is hard to believe they could be produced by any policy on the table today. So basically, all of these IPCC reports saying we're going to stay below two degrees are either saying we're going to completely decarbonize in a way that's not even possible, or we have to rely heavily on carbon capture technology. But it's interesting because if you look back in the past, um, in the year 2000, the IPCC projected that at upper levels, we would be capturing 5,000 megatons of CO2 per year by 2020. Currently, we're at 10 and that's in regards to the carbon captured on-site at processing facilities. So they said we'd be at 5,000, we're at 10. Now, when it comes to direct air carbon capture facilities, so not the ones that are taking it from manufacturing plants and processing plants, but the ones that are actually trying to remove it from the air, there are currently 19 of those facilities that exist right now, with plans in the work for around 35 more. And so the existing plants right now remove just north of 10,000 tons of CO2 each year. However, we're releasing 43 billion tons each year. So where we're at so far, we're removing one 4.3 millionth of the carbon that we're releasing into the atmosphere every year via direct air capture. And just to sort of reiterate and clarify, the first number I was talking about, where they said we were going to be at 5,000 megatons and we've only hit 10 megatons, that is for carbon that we're capturing from, you know, fertilizer plants, natural gas plants. This other number, though, one 4.3 millionth of our emissions we are capturing directly from the air each year. So if you want to talk about scale, we have a long way to go. Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight because when you say something like we're removing more than 10,000 tons of carbon from the air, like that sounds like a huge amount. You're thinking, wow, we're making incredible progress. Or even when they say, hey, we've got all these plans. And if we build this facility and that, we're going to be removing a million tons. That That's all good and great. That sounds like we're doing big, incredible things. And yet, like you said, it's just a tiny, almost meaningless percentage. It's just such a small fraction of the emissions that we're actually putting out there every year. Yeah, I believe one number that I heard was that the largest carbon capture facility in the world, in an entire year, they only negated like three seconds of emissions or something like that. So I mean, it's basically negligible, and yet there are hundreds of millions of dollars going to these plants, you know, to, to facilitate that technology. And by the way, going back, I had said 43 billion tons is what we're releasing every year. And I had seen numbers ranging from, you know, the 30 billions 
up to even 50 billion. It seems like there's different ways that it's being measured. You know, which human activities do we even measure to include in that? So it's hard to pin down an exact number as far as the billions of tons of CO2 that we're emitting each year. But whatever number you pick in that range, the amount that we're capturing is just absolutely minuscule. So all that being said, even the current plants that we do have doing this are plagued by underperformance. As an example, there's a carbon capture facility owned by Chevron in Australia. And this last summer, they announced that they only met 30% of their carbon capture goal. And that was at an LPG plant there, where the goal was only supposed to offset 40% of that plant's emissions. So if they had reached their goal, they would offset 40% of the emissions. But since they only reached 30% of their goal, they ended up offsetting only 12% of the emissions. And one source I saw said that if you included everything at that plant, some of the emissions that they don't have a way to currently even address, all of the carbon capture there would have only negated some 1.8% of all the emissions. And that's just outrageous, especially considering that it's Australian tax dollars that are going towards funding that specific plant. And we'll, again, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. For another example, just days ago, it came out that Shell's Quest plant in Canada only captures 48% of emissions from what was supposed to be a completely green hydrogen plant. They were supposed to be removing 90%, and they found that the plant was actually emitting more carbon than it was even capturing. So to a lot of people, it was just this joke. It's basically being memefied about how completely inefficient it is. And so the worst part about all of this to me is that a significant amount of the funding that's going towards these carbon capture facilities, the ones that we're talking about here, attached to resource extracting companies like Chevron and Shell and ExxonMobil, they're being funded by taxpayers, you know, subsidized by the government. Just last November in the U.S., Joe Biden's infrastructure bill included $12 billion dedicated towards carbon capture and storage. And only $3.5 billion of that, which goes to actual direct air capture. The rest of it is going to go to companies like the ones we've just talked about to introduce carbon capture use and storage into their processes. So a lot of environmentalists are really upset about this because they say that that $12 billion could go towards the effort of just decarbonizing. We could put that money towards things that we know at least work to some extent, to decarbonize, create more renewables, that sort of thing. So not only then is the money going towards something that may not be super effective, it's also taking away from things that we know are more effective. Yeah. And I, as you mentioned that, it makes me think about something I saw as I was looking back through some of the policies that have been enacted. And there's a, a tax credit called 45Q. It was expanded in 2018 to provide a credit for carbon capture. And it was like up to $50 per metric ton if you capture it and store it and up to $35 per metric ton if it's used for enhanced oil recovery, right? What we talked about before where you pump it into an oil well and that makes it easier to extract oil. And the IRS doesn't divulge who they've given this credit to or for how much, but some people that did a lot of digging on it, they, they mentioned that ExxonMobil likely got a couple hundred million dollars from just this one tax credit. And you mentioned the more recent infrastructure bill, and we talk about some of these other policies, and it does seem like the majority of the money from the government, which really is money from taxpayers, is just going right back to these oil companies. 
Yeah, and on that front, exactly, corporations are actually currently lobbying for increases in those credits and the length of time that they're paid for them. And it's not going to surprise me at all when they win you know, those lobbying efforts. So taxpayers are already basically subsidizing the fossil fuel industry directly through sort of this disguise of carbon capture use and storage. And that's just increasing. So that's sort of the worst part of it to me is that we're doing something that's not effective. We're using taxpayer money to do it when that taxpayer money could be going somewhere else to do something more effective. And it's encouraging fossil fuel companies to continue business as usual, right? We're, we're basically saying, oh, it's fine to extract everything that you want as long as you like pretend that what you're doing is helping the environment. Oh, and by the way, you can do it with taxpayer dollars. You know, corporations want to look good in the eyes of consumers. They have to look like they're trying, at least. So they lobby for carbon capture. And according to uh, one article that I read, this is by InsideClimateNews.org. They said, the most powerful forces pushing for carbon capture have been fossil fuel companies, which have promoted CCS, which is carbon capture and storage, for decades, but have increased their lobbying and marketing for the technology in recent years as they have fallen under increased pressure to address climate change. Soon after launching a new business line that it said would deploy carbon capture technology, ExxonMobil in April proposed a $100 billion mega project in Houston that would capture emissions from the region's heavy industry and store it underground. But there's a catch. The company said it would need substantial government funding to move forward. With the two major pieces of legislation working their way through Congress, Exxon may get what it wants. And this was before that legislation actually got pushed through Congress, which was the infrastructure bill. Yeah, honestly, it's brilliant. If you are an oil company, it's a win-win, right? Where you've got this resource that the whole world is addicted to and depends on. By extracting this resource, you're doing all this damage to the environment. But you can publicize that you're doing all these things to help the environment because you're investing in carbon capture. But that same carbon capture is not only subsidized by the government, it also allows you to use that CO2 to pump down into oil wells to make it easier to extract more. So it's like you're getting money from multiple sides and it's it's awful, it's frustrating, but I mean, they're geniuses. They, they've played their cards very well. They have, and you hate to see it because you watch the rest of society laud carbon capture as this wonderful thing that's going to save us and look at all these corporations being so responsible and using it, and yet it's creating all these problems on the back end. Another big worry with that is that by relying on carbon capture technology with these companies, we're actually creating an interdependency on it, on not just the carbon capture, but on the CO2 itself that we're able to extract from carbon capture. So we're basically not only continuing business as usual, but we're becoming dependent on business as usual. We're becoming dependent on the use and burning of fossil fuels so that we can collect the carbon dioxide. That article I just mentioned goes on to say, other provisions in the infrastructure bill would pour billions into building carbon dioxide pipelines and funding research into making plastics and other products out of the gas. Walsh said the funding could make it harder to phase out fossil fuels by creating new jobs and economies that depend on their emissions. It's creating this new interdependency on fossil fuels. So earlier I had talked about how David Wallace Wells had mentioned that in order to keep ourselves below two degrees Celsius, it was going to take this mobilization 
not seen since World War II. And this is sort of the type of thing we're talking about. Obviously, this is not that big of a mobilization, but the little bit of mobilization that is happening from the corporate side of things is creating new economies. It's creating entirely new industries and therefore making us dependent on those for our economy to continue. The last paragraph of that article caught my attention because it says this. It says, it's a little tricky trying to treat it as a zero-sum game. The key will be whether government support for carbon capture acts to test the technology or to simply support the fossil fuel industry. How this money is going to be spent will really matter. And it goes back to the idea that we talked about at the beginning, that the technology isn't inherently bad. The technology itself could use some fleshing out. If we can figure out how to scale it at least some, then using direct air capture is better than absolutely nothing, right? Removing carbon dioxide from the air is crucially important and could be so helpful. But instead, we're using all the money to once again feed the sort of capitalist corrupt system through lobbying where we're just making the fossil fuel industry more money. So maybe let's just pretend for a second that Everything we just talked about, the nasty, corrupt way that carbon capture technology is being used, let's say all that disappeared, and from here on out, we were only going to use the technology for what it's really intended for, and that is lowering emissions, and let's say that everybody's intentions were the best on that, they were pure. There are still a ton of obstacles to making this even a possibility. So today, the cost for direct air capture systems are around 250 to $600 per ton of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. That is much more expensive than decarbonizing. That is much more expensive than using the natural types of carbon capture like trees. But there is research happening right now around ways to make this cheaper. And, and there have been some studies that have come out where they think that they can get the cost down. So they think they can remove carbon directly from the air at a cost of between $94 and $230 per ton, a short learning curve from now, they say, and you could get reliably under $100 per ton. So if we set that as our metric and say, we're going to get to the point where we could get it for under $100 per ton removed from the atmosphere, at that price, it would, in theory, be possible to totally neutralize the entire global emission level each year at a cost of $3 trillion. So for only $3 trillion every single year, we can negate the billions of tons that we're doing in emissions each year. Yeah. And those numbers that you've mentioned are of a similar range to some that I saw. You know, I had mentioned previously that there are a couple of different ways to do direct air capture. There's a couple of different technologies that they're trying to implement. And it depends on which one you're talking about. For some of that technology, it's higher than what you mentioned. It's more like 300 to $800 per ton. Others claim that they're at a point where it's like $200 per ton. But in those cases, it's just really interesting because they say that they think they could get it down to $150 per ton, at which point it would almost be commercially viable. And when they say that, that's only a possibility that it's commercially viable if they're putting that carbon back into products like fuels that we can burn, or they're selling it to oil and gas companies that can use it to enhance their oil extraction. Right. So so you're saying that in order for it to be like actually economically viable, sort of self-sustaining, it has to be at least $150 and we have to be able to use it to continue to destroy the planet further. And then my $3 trillion number was for direct air capture, which was to say that $3 trillion would basically be lost. It would just be spent. There is no economic gain other than saving the 
atmosphere, obviously, you know, mitigating climate change, which will save us money indirectly. But but you're talking about more of a, an actual direct economic impact as a result of the carbon capture use itself. Yeah, it's just not a very pretty picture that's painted when you start to look at those numbers. And depending on how you look at it, you know, if we are up as high as 50 billion tons of carbon dioxide that we're putting up into the atmosphere each year, and although they claim the technology is getting better and they're able to scale it and the cost is going to start to go down, if we look at a plant that right now is doing carbon direct air capture at $200 per ton, if we just multiply that out, I mean, we're talking like $10 trillion just to remove the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere in a single year. Yeah, exactly. There's there's different ways to calculate it. There's different ways to look at it, but none of it makes economic sense. None of it makes sense to the planet. The only way that I could see any sort of policy around this ever working is the way that they're currently trying to do it. And that's to say, well, we have to find a way to make this economically feasible. And that is by using the carbon that we capture to pump more oil out of the ground. And one thing I was going to mention earlier that I forgot is that with that, just recently in 2018, Exxon led an ultimately successful lobbying campaign to strip the requirement that the EPA oversee the operations of companies that claim the tax credit to ensure the greenhouse gas is not escaping into the atmosphere. So it used to be that the EPA had to monitor, had to say the carbon that you're capturing and then putting back into the ground in order to force more oil out of these depleted wells, like we have to make sure that none of that carbon dioxide is escaping again into the atmosphere, which seems like the responsible thing to do in order to get your credit, you have to keep the carbon in the ground. But Exxon lobbied against that and said, no, the EPA can't be involved. We're just going to do our thing. So we really don't know if that carbon is actually even staying in the ground and those companies are still receiving the credit for it. So anyway, going back to obstacles, we're supposed to still be in this world where we're pretending like everybody's intentions are good. Cost is definitely an issue here in the trillions of dollars annually to mitigate our emissions. But cost isn't the only thing. Even if we could afford it, one estimate suggests that in order to have hopes of staying under two degrees through carbon capture, we would need to open new full-scale plants at the pace of one every working day for the next 70 years. And I think we've mentioned that number before on the podcast. But, you know, we're talking about how we have like somewhere in the 20s, you know, or 30s of carbon capture facilities, we need to be able to open one every single working day for the next 70 years. And currently, there are like 30 that are in some various stage of planning that will take years to finish the planning, the engineering, the construction, and to become operational. Time is not on our side, nor are the resources. But even if we were able to make that happen, let's say magically we were opening a plant every single day, in order to power all those carbon capture facilities, we would potentially have to double our current global energy use. Meaning when you consider all of the energy consumed today, we would use that much energy again, just to power the machines to suck the carbon from the air. And obviously, that power would have to be coming from completely renewable resources in order for that to even make any sort of sense. But completely renewable energy doesn't really exist since things like solar panels or wind turbines all require natural resources, and in many cases, rare and potentially hazardous resources. You know, one thing that I saw from an optimist on carbon capture was they said we could actually completely eliminate the world's emissions with 
40,000 carbon capture plants. And they were like, I, I know that sounds like a lot, but that's actually less than the number of power plants we have in the world. And yet developing and building all those power plants, you talk about all the decades of resources that have gone into that. And you can't just snap your fingers and create 40,000 carbon capture plants around the world. The amount of time that takes, like you highlighted, and the amount of money, right? If each one of these plants is millions, perhaps tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars to build, depending on how how big and robust of a carbon capture plant you're talking about, like who's going to pay for all that? How do we possibly build all those, let alone, like you said, operate them, especially considering all the energy that's required to even run a carbon capture plant? Yeah, one of the stats that I found interesting was it said the size of the infrastructure required to store the CO2 would be two to four times the size of our current oil and gas industry. That's just to store the CO2 that we capture would require an infrastructure between two and four times the size of our already existing oil and gas industry. So the scale on this is just absolutely massive and quite frankly, in my opinion, impossible. On the other side of things, you have questions around politics. You know, how do you force a nation to comply with this? The U.S. could, they won't, but they could mobilize as much as they did during World War II and do everything that they could in their power to make this happen. And even if they were to succeed, well, that's 15% of emissions. What about China's 25%? What about the other 60%? If just a few large countries don't do their part, it could easily mean the difference between the whole project being effective or not. And the countries who are sacrificing are bearing the cost, while the countries that refuse to sacrifice or pay up or put forth any effort for it, they're going to succeed economically off the backs of those that, that are working hard to mitigate climate change. So there's just so much incentive to not spend the money to do this and very little incentive to spend the money to do this, unless, of course, we can spend the money to do it. And that means we can continue business as usual. It, it brings up to me the idea of the Jevons paradox as well. If we make everybody feel comfortable like, oh, we've come up with this amazing new technology, we're rolling it out at scale, we're mitigating our carbon dioxide emissions, people are just going to go wild, people and corporations especially, saying, great, this means we can just emit as much as we want because there are magical machines out there that are capturing it all. And, you know, next thing you know, the whole idea of environmentalism is out the window. Why, you know, we don't need electric vehicles anymore. We're able to pump out way more gas because of this captured carbon dioxide. Oh, and also the emissions from your diesel truck are being sucked up by the machines. So, you know, go out and just live it up, emit like crazy. We've got it all under control. And in the end, you just end up emitting way more than than you're able to capture. So the whole thing to me is just a farce. You know, it's it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And while in many ways on the not corporate side, it may be good intentioned, the scale is just too large. And yet putting so much of our hope and effort and attention and energy and money into this venture is making people think there's a solution to the climate issue. There's a solution to the level of emissions that we're creating. And it makes them not look at the issue seriously. It makes them not really see the problem. They just trust what they're being told. And one day, and it won't likely be until it's too late, they'll find out that it wasn't real. And it'll be at that day where we start trying very last ditch efforts like geoengineering and, you know, face the potential consequences that, uh, that come from that. Yeah, I'm the kind of person that loves when somebody will just explain something to me like I'm five years old. 
And I think in this case, if somebody said, well, well, paint me a picture of what this really looks like, explain it to me like I'm five. I might say something like, hey, imagine you are at the base of a mountain and you have to remove this mountain. And just the thought, like if you had a bulldozer, it would still pretty much be an impossible task, but instead you've been given a spoon. And at the same time, you're going to have a thousand people with shovels working 24 seven to pile more dirt on top of that mountain. Good luck. You know, I, I, I might look at that spoon and say, well, hey, at least it's something. Like, I guess I can keep the mountain from getting as big as it would if I didn't have this spoon to dig away. But like you said, the cost, the scale, the obstacles in terms of corporate practices and corruption and political issues and restrictions, there's, there's just so much that's working against us. And at the same time, I want so badly to to be able to look at something like carbon capture and see it as this savior for us. But as we've covered extensively here, when you crunch the numbers, there's not a lot of hope that it's going to be even as big of a factor as so many people seem to think it will be. Yeah, I get this really deep sense of sadness when we talk about stuff like this, because like you said, I want it to be real. I want it to work. And for people who really believe in it and advocate for it, I feel like I'm like ripping their dreams away or something, you know, by by talking about how bad it all really is. You know, I think any amount of direct air capture that's working, that we do have out there that's taking carbon out of the sky, that's better than nothing. You know, as long as it's being powered cleanly, I guess, it's helping, that's great. As long as it's not giving people false hope and just allowing them, enabling them to feel like they can emit more, then then yeah, it can't hurt. But when you see what corporations are doing with it, when you see the the negative effects that it's having, how it's actually taking us backwards in so many ways instead of forwards, there's just no way to not talk about it, you know, to be really frustrated and just hope that people see it and understand it. And that if any action is going to happen, if real steps are going to be taken, that hopefully it's through a serious look at decarbonization and degrowth and, you know, not from magical thinking like carbon capture or geoengineering. All right, Corey. Well, I think we've been intentional and thoughtful and try to be very thorough in our research and presenting it in a way that makes sense and, and paints an accurate picture. For all who are listening, we're so grateful that you are on this journey with us as we're learning about all of this, we feel like it's so important. And as a request, if you have not yet left us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, especially a written review, please do so. We would really appreciate it. It helps us as we continue to try and reach more people and help them see just what kind of a situation we're in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.